Okay, so last time, which would have been three weeks ago, uh, I talked about King Saul, and I talked about a message called the slow fade. Uh, I talked about how he ultimately allowed his heart to betray him, and that he had opportunity. He was raised with all of the right circumstances. He had wealth. uh, He had position. He was giving the kingdom, but he squandered it, and he lost it. Ultimately, he chose himself. Now, over the next three weeks, we're going to actually be contrasting that with somebody else who is a man after God's own heart. Uh, And we are going to be looking at, if you know who the man after God's own heart is, that is David, who eventually becomes King David. We're going to look at David's choices. We're going to look at his successes. We're going to look at his failures. We're going to look at what made him stand out from the crowd. And we're going to call this one Looking at the Heart. And this is part one of three. Now, if you remember in our message about King Saul... We looked and uh, we kind of bookended his life. At the beginning of his life, he sought out a prophet of God. And right near the end of his life, just days before he died, he ended up seeking out a witch instead of a prophet. Completely 180. Now, in the middle of his life, during his disobedience of God, you might remember that there's a specific battle that he was supposed to kill everybody. And he left the king alive. Not only did he leave the king alive, he left all the cattle and all the livestock alive. And he also erected a statue for himself for his own victories. It was during this disobedience that God came to Samuel and said, it's time, we're choosing another one. So turn with me, if you will, to the book of 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel chapter 16. We're going to be in 1 Samuel 16 and 17 today. So chapter 16, verse 1. It says, Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing that I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. This is a good warning here. God has rejected Saul. This is a good warning for those of us who claim to be following God, that if we start choosing our own path instead of following God, ultimately, He's going to choose another in our place. He's going to choose another to accomplish his will. Unfortunately, we are replaceable. Um, God wants us to be following him. And if we're not, he will choose another. And this is what has happened. He has chosen another instead of Saul. Saul wanted the glory. And he chose for himself. And he got his temporary glory. He got a pat on the back from the people and a well done. But he lost so much more because he sought after himself. And now he's going to teach not only the nation a lesson, he's also going to teach his prophet Samuel a lesson. Because Samuel gets up there and he starts looking at the sons. And I want to check out chapter 16, verses 6 and 7. So it was when they came, this is talking about the elders and Samuel, uh, that he looked at Eliab, and he said, Surely he's the Lord anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as a man sees. For the Lord looks at the outward appearance, but the, for the man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So you may have heard this voice, a verse before. The verse that we just read, The man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. You see, our eyes are a tremendous blessing, especially if you have gotten into slightly older age and they've started fading, you start really realizing how much of a tremendous blessing they are. Just by observing from a distance, we can learn so many things. The color, the patterns, the beauty, we can understand, all because we have sight. 
But one of the oddities in life is that our sight can often blind us from the truth. Our ability to see blinds us. You see, we tend to look at the outward of beauty and we assume an inward beauty. We put handsome actors on pedestals and we put pin-up posters all over our walls and become like the crowd that once chose Saul. They saw him as a man who was handsome. He was standing head and shoulders above the crowds. And they say, wow, he's really good looking. That's my choice. Going against the grain in only a way that God can, he chooses the youngest. He chooses the smallest, the most unrefined, and the guy that's not even invited to the party. That's who he chose. So pick it up here in 1 Samuel 6, 16, 11 through 12. Just a couple verses down. So now they sent for David. This is, uh, they've already talked about him, and he's going to send for him. They bring him in, and now he was ruddy with bright eyes, and he was good looking. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is the one. God has chosen something else. You see, there's something about a person when you first meet them. This is what Samuel remembers, and he writes down the ruddy and the good-looking. I remember when my wife and I met. Um, she, was, uh, she had just moved to the town that I grew up in, and she was working in the deli counter, actually with my best friend and a couple of other friends. I happen to know most of the people in the stores, a really small town. We had one small store that served like six different towns, so we were kind of the central place, and we still had a very small school. Um, but I remember her eyes. I remember the blue in her eyes. And I remember the sparkle. I remember never seeing that color blue in anybody else's eyes. Now, if you ask her about our first time meeting, she won't remember quite as much. In fact, actually, she'll probably tell you that I was wearing a t-shirt and shorts, which now she says, you know, looking back, I wore way too often. <laughs> I was not very good at changing clothes back then. As a high school teenager, uh, thankfully, I have improved with my wife's direction. Um, we tend to decide with our eyes how we feel about a person. God focuses on what is truly important. He focuses on our character. This is what gets David noticed. And actually, it's what gets him a job in the palace eventually. Check out 17 through 22. So Saul says to his servants, Saul is having problems at this point, And his servants are suggesting a solution. 17. So Saul says to his servants, provide me now with a man who can play well and bring him to me. At this point, I'm going to interlude uh, a little bit of background of the verses we skipped. Saul is having these fits of rage, and he's having these hard times coping, and they've noticed that music is helping him, and that it seems to be the only thing that's helping him to calm down. So he wants someone to, to come and start playing music for him. So then one of the servants in verse 18 says, Look, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a mighty man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a handsome person, and the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse, and he said, Send me your son David, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey and loaded it with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat, and sent them by his son David to Saul. So David came to Saul, and he stood before him, and he loved him greatly, and he became his armor-bearer. Then Saul said to Jesse, saying, Please let David stand before me, for he has found favor in my sight. Did you catch what they said, the servants? What the servants said earlier is he is skillful in playing a man of valor. He's a man of war. He's prudent in speech and good presence. Now, how would they know this? At this point, David has not won any battles. He has not gone up against Goliath. Eventually he will. In fact, if you look at the timeline, it might be a little bit small. Hopefully you can see it. 
We have David is born, then Samuel anoints David, then David plays lyre for Saul, which is kind of like a laugh harp in many ways, uh, and then he kills Goliath. So at this point, they are calling him a mighty man of war and of valor, but he hasn't gone up to war. So how can they know this? We're going to eventually answer this. We'll eventually get to this. You see, these men are watching his character. I am a people watcher. You might be a people watcher as well. In fact, they say at the beginning of the verse, uh, one of the servants in verse 18 says, look, I have seen a son. I have seen a son. So he says, I'm people watching, and I've been watching this guy, and he's been showing these things. You see, shepherds, they tended to travel together. And it made it easier for the night watches. So I could take a couple of hours rest and you could watch over the sheep. And then when you rested, I could watch over the sheep. Instead of being one person that had to always be vigilant, it was a lot easier to gather together. These were servants. They would have been out in the fields and they would have taken watch turns with Jesse's son, David. This is how they know. Now, we're going to find out here in a moment why, from David's own mouth, why the shepherds told him and they held him in such a high regard. But he's a humble young man, and God's Spirit is working through him. He's been anointed by God already. You see, when we're relying on the Spirit of God in our own lives, we become vessels for God's outpouring of love to others around us. It's here in these verses that David gets his foot into the door to the palace, his training and his observation. You see, now that he's going to be in the palace, we know that God has already anointed him to be king. This is where he's going to get his training, from the king himself. He's going to sit there. He's going to play his music. He's going to be around the king at all times, and he's going to learn the politics. He's going to learn the background and how to deal with the nation. This is where he's getting his training to go from shepherd to king. This is where he's getting all of that. Now, hop over to 1 Samuel chapter 17, verses 4 through 7. Just a couple of verses down. Just We stopped in 22, so two verses. Now the Philistines and their armies had gathered together to battle, and they were gathered at Sokoth, which belongs to Judah. And they camped between Sokoth and Azekah, and the Ephesdemim, okay, I'm not really great at some Bible words, that's one of them. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together, and they encamped in the valley of Elah. I'm sorry, I'm still in verse 2. And the array of the Philistines. The Philistines stood on a mountain on the side, the Israelites stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And a champion went out from the camp of the Philistines. And you probably know his name. If you've ever heard this story before, his name is Goliath. There you go. Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. The weight of the coat of mail was 5,000 shekels of bronze. We'll get to that. And he had a bronze armor on his legs, bronze javelin between his shoulders. Now the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his iron spearhead weighed 600 shekels, and a shield bearer went before him. So before we get to David and why he had such a reputation, which we will eventually get to David's own words, we're going to talk a little bit about war is on the brink again. Saul, through all of his reign, is continually battling with the Philistines, and yet again, war has reared its ugly head. This time, battle is slightly different, either in an effort to save lives, but in all reality, more of an effort to save as many slaves as possible. They decide to do battle one-on-one, so each side picks a champion, then the loser side becomes all of the servants. It's a good way to get a lot of people uh, as servants very quickly. Now, you just read what Goliath had for stature. Unfortunately, our manuscripts have a little bit of a discrepancy. So Tom Chrysler last week talked about textual criticism. He talked about how we compare different texts 
from different eras to the original text, and we go back and forth. This is where textual criticism comes into play because some of our newer uh, texts and manuscripts, like the Dead Sea Scrolls, will actually put Goliath more like seven and a half feet, where some of our older manuscripts will actually put him closer to ten and a half feet. So there's actually a discrepancy. One thing we do know for sure is that the weight of the armor stays the same. You're talking 125 pounds of bronze. I'm not sure a seven and a half foot tall man is going to be able to not alone just carry 125 pounds of armor, but also wield it in battle and be effective. He's a champion. He's really good. So regardless of his actual height, we know that this guy is massive. A weaver's beam is a loom, a loom beam, which you're talking like eight feet long with a spear tip that's 15 pounds of iron. Talk about holding an eight foot telephone, uh, um, a flagpole, an eight foot tall flagpole with a 15 uh, pound head, a spear tip. This guy is massive. He is a formidable foe and he's good at battle even though he's carrying all of this stuff. Now, David has come down and we know at this point that David actually isn't with the kingdom because we find out that he is actually back with his father. So what we assume is that when he first went into Saul's service, he actually was going back and forth between living with Saul at the, the palace and then going back and helping his dad with the sheep. So he was going back and forth. And at this point right now, he has gone back and he is with his father tending the sheep. His father's getting old and his father says, hey, you know what? We need to be able to go and find out what's happening with your brothers. So he sends him down with a bunch of provisions. And he says, hey, go check on your brothers. Bring these provisions to the army leaders and bring these to your brothers. So David is sent to the front battle to find out. Now, he says something very interesting here. And he says, mm, let me see if I can actually find it here. Uh, I didn't actually write this one down, and I probably should have. So David was the youngest in verse 14. And the three oldest followed Saul, and occasionally he returned to Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem, like we were just talking about. So he carries these cheeses down, and he comes down, and he sees the predicament. And then he says to his brothers and those who are around him, who does this guy think he is that he can defy the armies of living God? He is there, and he sees this guy, this huge mountain of a man, who is making fun of all the Israelites. And he's saying, you guys have nothing. You're not coming out. And he's mocking their God. He's saying, you guys are powerless before me. And David's the only one that's willing to say, who is this guy? This guy can't do this. Well, his older brother rebukes him, says, no, what are you doing here? Go back home. You should be back with your little sheep. His brother actually gets really mad at him. On the other hand, some of the servants say, hey, David's saying this stuff, and he seems to be the only one willing to stand up. And the word gets back to Saul. Now, there are no introductions because they already know each other. So hop towards verse 33 with me. So Saul says to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are just a youth. He is a man of war from his youth. But David says to Saul, hold right there for just a second. Think about this. Saul just used his eyes. And he looked at David and he says, you're just a youth. This guy has been a soldier since his youth. He's massive. You see, we each can see the poor, and we see the hungry, and we think they can never be fed. We see the addicted, and we think that they will never be free. We see the lost, and we say that they're never going to be found. And Henry Ford once said that whether you think you can or you think you can't, you're right. We get in a mindset because of what we see. Saul got in a very specific mindset because his eyes were blinding him from the truth. He saw a little boy 
going up against a very big warrior who was trained and seasoned. He let his eyes do all of the thinking and not his heart, not his mind. You see, when we have a situation, we make up our own minds. I've done it. You've probably done it as well. We've already chosen the answer. Why? Because we've trained ourselves to. You've trained yourself to look at something and just automatically have a response. This person is a fill-in-the-blank. You've trained yourself. David had trained himself differently. He saw situations differently. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. Let's check out verse 34 through 37. We're going to continue what Saul was saying. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went out after it, and I struck it, and I delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it arose against me, I caught it by its beard, and I struck it, and I killed it. Your servant has killed both a lion and a bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing that he has defied the armies of the living God. Moreover, David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. So Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Over the years, we train ourselves in small, insignificant decisions. We develop patterns of thought. We develop patterns of go-to. This is the way I automatically react to these things. You see, David had also trained his auto-response. David had years of little insignificant decisions that trained his automatic response. You see, his words will tell us everything that we need to know. He had forced him to trust God. You ask, how do I know? It doesn't say that. Yes, it does. The text shows us that our natural reaction is to trust our own judgment. It takes a man, I dare say a man of great internal character, to retrain himself to follow God first. So how did he do it? Let's take a look. Number one, he watched the flock. The first thing he says is, I watched while I was watching my father's sheep. Shepherding has to be one of the most boring jobs in the land. It is a, uh, the low blue-collar job. It is mind-numbingly slow, dead-end pace of a job. But David took that job and realized that God had put him there for a reason. He owned his job. His job was not great. Your job might not be great. But what happened is David was put there, and he realized that God wanted him there for a purpose, so David owned it. Wherever you are at, one thing you can learn is you can own the job, and you can say, you know what, I'm doing this for the Lord. Number two is he defended the flock. Because he was put there, and he realized that he was put there by God, he put forth his all. He owned his job because it had been given to him by God. He didn't slouch, and he didn't run away when adversity came. He knew that if he put there by God, then he was going to be backed by God. God would be there for him. If God has appointed you to a place, God will see it through. And number three, he trusted God for the victory. You see, he owned his lot in life. He took pride in his work and he trusted God for the outcome. He was brave, not because he was arrogant, as his other brother had assumed. Rather, he had complete trust in God, and that's coming through in his words here. It had been built over several years of small, insignificant decisions to trust him. Small, slowly to big things. This is why the other servants recommended him. Some people will say it's true grit, uh, if you're an old Western movie fan. Others will say it's a strength of character. God looked on the inside of David's makeup. God looks at the inside. He sees someone who is going to determine to trust him even in the most trying of times. 
Remember, I said earlier that God looks at our potential. This is what God did with David, and this is what he does when he chooses you for a specific task. He doesn't just see you now. He sees you with all your flaws. He sees you with all your shortcomings, but he also sees who you can be if you trust him. David learned how to trust God. Unlike Saul, David's obstacles brought him closer and closer to God. Saul's kept widening the gap. Why did Saul's obstacles keep widening the gap and David's keep bringing him closer? What was the difference between the two men? The answer is David built his automatic response. So both in martial arts and bodybuilding, if you look at the statistics, they'll say that it takes three to 500 repetitions to develop a motor skill. Three to 500 repetitions to develop a motor skill. But to actually get to the point where you have muscle memory, so that's the knee-jerk response that we call it. It's 3,000 to 5,000 repetitions. 3,000 to 5,000 repetitions to make it so it's automatic before you even think about it, to make it muscle memory. So what does that say about your prayer life? When we turn to God, that's a lot of time on our knees to make it so that it becomes muscle memory, so that we automatically think of going to God. Because we train ourselves in other paths. We Three to 5,000 times do other things. But it has to be purposed. It has to be a long time coming and always these little small incidents. Don't, don't pass up an opportunity. David didn't allow those to pass. So how does this affect your life today and what should we be doing to be more like David and less like Saul? I want to say this. Number one, accept God. Accept that God has a future plan for you. He loves you and that the only way to a relationship with him is to accept that you can't do it alone and that Jesus had to die for your punishment. I want to show you some verses. It's Romans 3, 23 through 26 in the NLT, but I'll also have it up in the screen as well. For everyone has sinned and we fall short of God's glorious standards. Yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair. When he held back, he did not punish those who sinned in times past, for he was looking ahead and including them into the time and what he would do in the present time. And then the final verse, it says this, God did this to demonstrate his righteousness, for he himself is fair and he's just, and he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. That is Romans 3, 23 through 26. It's trusting in Jesus, knowing that we are faulted and knowing that he is the only one that can save us from our sins and make it right and make it better. Number two, establish a daily habit. If you don't already have one, establish a daily habit of reading the word and praying for him. Remember when I said three to 5,000 repetitions? It starts here. It starts in the morning or in the evening, whichever works better for you. I am a, a morning person. If I don't do it in the morning, I forget about it when the evening comes. It just does not work for me. But you have to establish a routine that works for you. Read his word regularly. Establish a habit. And yes, it's hard. And yes, it takes work. But it's worth it. And you'll become a person of prayer before you know it. By the time you need it, it'll be second nature. Number three, stay humble. Stay teachable. Just because you're on the right path does not mean that you're always going to make all of the right decisions. Your reactions are going to bring you closer or further from God. 
Each decision brings you closer or further from God. And you have to remember that and keep that in mind as you're moving forward. So the question I want to close with and I want to ask you today is what do you have to change to grow closer to him? David let his circumstances bring him closer to God because of his choices. What are your circumstances going to do to your relationship with God? How have your other choices affected your relationship with him? What are you going to do to change, to grow closer to him today? Let's close in prayer. Father, I thank you so much for an opportunity to dig into your word and to look at a man who wasn't chosen because he was uh, the biggest, the handsomest, the, uh, the most well-off. He was chosen because he had the right internal stuff and you knew that he would choose you first every time he had an opportunity. Father, I ask that you continue to work in each of our lives. Help us to be the people that will choose you first. Lord, help each and every single one of us to continue to develop our daily habits that build our relationship with you. Father, help us to realize that it's going to be work, but that it's going to be worth it. Father, I ask that you continue to work in the lives of each person who hears this. Father, I ask that you bless their day. In Jesus' name, I ask these things. Amen. You can stand for our final song.